Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. It's wonderful you all came out. Thank you for coming. Um, It's been almost exactly two years that Daniel and the gang were filming um, Navalny um, sometime after he was poisoned and just as he was preparing to return to Russia. And um, a year later, the film came out. Um, The film was released. Navalny was not. Um, and um, two, three weeks later, I think Daniel was saying to me, the war in Ukraine started. Putin starts this war in Ukraine. It's now been a year that the war has been going on, nearly a year, and here we are, and here we are tonight, and it's like there's a way in which the film has never been more relevant, Um, And as the world continues to descend into these authoritarian tyrannies, it can seem as if everything is spinning wildly out of control. Certainly it does to me. Um, But with their moral centers, Navalny the man and Navalny the film, who houses the spirit of this man, um, helps us to navigate this world, to slow down the sort of crazy spinning that's happening all around us, uh, to fix us in a certain way so that we can experience the empowering belief that that Commitment matters. Leadership matters. Courage matters. Filmmaking matters. It's not often you come away from a documentary and think it's one of the great thrillers you've ever seen. And it's not often that a leader of such grit and heart and intelligence comes to the fore, making his own life in opposition, risking his own life in opposition to a tyrannical authority regime. After the screening, the film's intrepid, gifted director, Daniel Daniel Rohr, is going to be here in conversation with Steve Salm of St. Mary's College and also with one of the film's producers, Shane Boris, and Christo Grozev, the Bellingcat journalist you will meet in the center of this astounding film you're about to see. Before we all watch Navalny, I'd like to welcome to the stage Alexei Navalny's daughter, Dasha. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, I can't stay for the screening or for the Q&A afterwards because I have class and my mom will kill me if I don't go to the class. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, I just wanted to say thank you all for coming. This is an incredibly important story, not just because my face is on the huge screen, but also because, you know, spreading the word is so important. And my father should be released. He is in prison for false accusations, and he's an amazing human being and is supposed to be free, like everyone who's sitting in this room. So thank you, and I hope you enjoy the documentary. Okay, so Alexei, I want to talk about something that we sort of touched on this morning. And you might hate this, but I really want you to think about it. If you are killed, if this does happen, What message do you leave behind to the Russian people? Alexei Navalny has taken on the most dangerous job in the world, challenging the leader of the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin. If I want to be a leader of this country, if I want to fight Putin, 
I have to organize people. Война в Украине и война в Сирии. Я прекращу войну. The Kremlin hates Navalny so much they refuse to say his name. I was banned from everything and blacklisted. But as I became more and more famous, I was totally sure that it will be problematic for them to kill me. And boy, were you wrong. Yes, I was very wrong. Alexei Navalny arrives at this hospital in Berlin to have your dad, an opposition leader, being poisoned. It was literally like a book. Come on, poisoned? Seriously? We were so shocked. It's like Putin's leaving a signature on a crime scene. It's kind of stupid. found a domestic assassination machine on an industrial scale. Navalny will personally call these poisoners one by one. Это Навальный Алексей вас беспокоит. Хотел узнать, зачем вы хотели меня убить. Oh my god, you ruined their day. Navalny is stepping into a showdown with the Kremlin. I want to go back and try to change Russia. It's something worth fighting for. Are you not scared, Alexei? Поэтому бездействовать не надо. Incredible film. Hello, everyone. I'm, I'm Stephen Saum, Executive Director of Strategic Communications and Content at St. Mary's College and your moderator for today. Uh, and it's my distinct pleasure to introduce our guests, Navalny Director Daniel Rohr <laughs> Producer Shane Boris. and investigative reporter Christo Grosso. Gentlemen, please have a seat. And a reminder to our audience here, you have question cards. Uh, so if you have a question that you'd like to ask our guests, please put that down and we'll have a chance to ask those uh, later, later this evening. Um, Daniel, Shane, Christo, thank you so much for, for joining us here this evening. Um, the film ends on that incredibly powerful note coming back to, to where it began um, as well with that uh, very, very powerful message. Um, I'm wondering if you could take a, take a moment to, you know, share your thoughts on, on the message that he sends out coming back to the, the sense of 
the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for, for good people to, uh, to do nothing. Um, so what is, it, what is it that we should be doing in response to your film? Well, that is an excellent question, and uh, that's what I've been thinking about for most of the last nine months. I think more than anything, I frame my role as the director of this film to get as many people in the world to watch it. My number one prerogative and ambition is to keep Alexei Navalny alive. That's the first thing. Right now, he is languishing in a gulag six and a half hours outside of Moscow. He is in solitary confinement, perpetual solitary confinement. And he's in solitary because he is the number one anti-war advocate in Russia. They would let him out of solitary. They would release him back to the general prison population, which is a miserable existence, but it is no comparison to being in the very small concrete cell that he currently occupies. If only he would just relent and stop with his constant um, anti-war rhetoric, his foundation, who, who are all exiled, and they've reconstituted themselves in Vilnius, Lithuania, spend every waking moment working towards the goal of ending this war and trying to figure out how to put an end to this regime and relegate Vladimir Putin to the dustbin of history where he belongs. And because of that, Navalny is languishing. And I believe that there is a correlation between how well-known he is, how much space he occupies in the global consciousness, and his survival. We need to dissuade the regime from murdering him in prison, and we do that by introducing him to people, by sharing this film with people, and having people talk about it. So what I tell all of the, audience, the audiences that I've been fortunate enough to engage with over the last year of promoting this movie is that your homework is to tell five or ten of your friends to watch this film because everyone needs to see it because I very much feel like our guy's life is, is on the line right now. Following up on that, I know Dasha, who spoke before the <coughs> film this evening, she recently wrote a piece for Time quoting, um, quoting her father um, saying, everything has a price, and now in spring of 2022, which he was referring back to, we must pay this price. There's no one to do it for us. Let's not be against the war. Let's fight against the war. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, you've talked about what you hope kind of comes out of the, the trajectory from the film. How did the three of you and, and the other players involved, how did this, this film come together in the first place? Um. Daniel and I were working on a completely different film. We were um, working in 2020, middle of 2020, we were in Kiev, working on a, another thriller-like documentary, which was about a um, semi-successful Ukrainian sting operation against what is now known as the worst private military company in the world, the Wagner Company. Um, the Ukrainians had done a sting operation and had essentially infiltrated the Wagner private military company and had almost arrested 33 uh, Wagnerites on, en route to a fake assignment. As we were filming that, um, we realized that the Ukrainian government at the time didn't want to escalate relations with Russia too much, so the film became unwelcome. We became unwelcome in Kiev. So we had to leave and parked ourselves for a while in Vienna. And Daniel was very depressed because he had fallen in love with that film and he had uh, kind of given up his private life to be in, all in, in Europe just to work on that. And I had to give him a filler, doing something else. And I said, <laughs> well, maybe this Navalny thing can be interesting. And he's, 
his eyes lit up. So the he rest came in. We had a meeting, and and I don't know if I was depressed, but I didn't have a job. It was the middle of the pandemic. I had a girlfriend who was threatening to break up with me because I left home and went off to Ukraine. <laughs> and Crystal walks in one morning and he says, "Okay, I have something else that might be interesting." I was like, "What is it, Christo?" And he whispers as if he's telling me a state secret. He says, "You know that Navalny guy." I was like, yeah, what about him? He says, I think I might have a lead into who tried to poison him. And I shot out of my chair and I said, Christo, who's making that movie? He says, I don't know. Should I ask him? I said, yeah, you should ask him. And a week later, we were sneaking across the German-Austrian border to uh, essentially go and pitch the leader of the Russian opposition who had, who had come out of his coma about four or five weeks earlier, uh, who was surprisingly spry and, and I think... Uh, a bit bored, maybe, in his small little village in Germany and, and receptive, thankfully, to uh, the pitch that we brought to him. Well, it wasn't an immediate um, acceptance. It took us about six hours to convince him that, A, I'm not CAA, and B, you're not some kid out of school who's trying to use a camera for the first time. But six hours later, I think um, there was a, enough of a trust for Alexei to allow us to start filming so we don't miss the moment. This is how we sold it to him. Let's talk about whether this is the right team to make the film about this crazy um, incident, um, this important incident. Let's park this discussion for later. Let's now start filming so we don't miss the moment. And I mean, documentary filmmaking, as many of you I'm sure know, is the art of being in the right place at the right time. And this film embodies that. Here was an extraordinary man who was an extraordinary crossroads of his life. I think that it's embodied by the one shot in the film when Alexei is running in the snow. And he comes to this fork in the road. And that's very much where he was at that moment. He knew that he was going to be going back to Russia. And our pitch to him was simple. Let us start filming because if you miss it, you're never going to get it back. And if you don't like us or the work we do, you can take... Uh, the footage and we'll walk away. And it was sort of like a, a sort of low risk, high reward proposition. That's how we tried to frame it. And we started filming the next day. He wanted to take me on a walk and he took me to meet his friends <coughs> who I learned very quickly were a little donkey and a little pony. <laughs> and I understood as soon it was one of these moments where I was shooting and I had to bite my lip because I was going to laugh. I was going to start laughing because he was, this man was so hysterical. He was so funny with these little, depressing-looking donkeys and ponies. It looked so sad. Um, Do you know that I, until I saw the film yeah. in a cinema, I didn't know which were the friends that you talked about. I thought they were German friends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I always referred to them as Alexei's friends, and Chris was like, which friends are those? <laughs> well, it's, a very, it's a very, of course, touching moment in, in the film. Um, and then, and then when, you, when you come back to it, with his, when his family goes to visit the the animals once, once again, um, the real tenderness that's, that's there as a, as a part of this, uh, the work that you've, you put together. I think one of the things I, I definitely want to, um, <coughs> Shane, I want to make sure we're congratulating everyone here. I don't know how audience members are aware of there are the awards that this film has already brought, uh, at, at Sundance, uh, for example, it's in December, it was shortlisted for the Academy Awards. Um, and just, just last week was long listed for the BAFTA Awards, the British uh, Academy of Film and, and Television Awards. Um, 
so I'm, I'm wondering kind of in, in terms of, you know, again, how, how you came together um, to make this. Shane, how, how did you come, come to work as, as part of this, this particular project? Yeah, I had, I had met Daniel several years before, but we reconnected in 2019, and uh, I immediately saw this young young human who had one of the most extraordinary processors that I had ever seen, um, and uh, I, I, I knew that I wanted to make a film with him. Um, when he and Christo and our other producer, Odessa Ray, were going to shoot with Navalny, I was in Los Angeles and I was talking to Daniel regularly, helping prepare interviews, helping to do research as it was as he was embarking on this, but I wasn't sure that I would participate. Over time, I, I immediately started to understand instinctually that this was extremely important. But I don't think I realized, you know, I was gonna make it with Daniel and I was seeing footage of Christo, this guy who didn't know that you're supposed to carry a pizza box like this instead of like this on the design. <laughs> and and yet I knew that I that something was special here. And as we continued to the story was unfolding and we continued to get footage in and transcripts, I think I, I realized why I needed to make this film only after I started to read the transcripts of Alexei. It's not in the film currently, but in one of his last statements before he goes to prison, he he implores uh, all of Russia and all of the world to not look down. And when I, when I heard that, um, I knew that myself, that for myself too, I wasn't able to look down. This, this story exists. His plight exists. Uh, the fight for uh, a world where tyranny is not left in the darkness, but where lights are shined on it, sh- shown on it so that we know that we must do something about it. When all of that came to the fore, um, it was it was very clear that we needed to make this movie together. That's and just on a on a tangent here for for a little bit, of course, it, and this is a huge story unto itself. You have another film that was um, nominated for an Academy Award that has a particular poignancy right now: the the Edge of Democracy about two presidencies in Brazil. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's certainly been on my mind and in my heart these days. I've been in touch with all of my my, my friends and collaborators in Brazil. Um, it's it's weighing heavily on us. Um, I think if you would have asked me that question a, a week ago, I would have been here smiling, saying, we could make a movie in 2019, uh, 2020, that had as the final scene uh, a president who was falsely accused falsely accused and imprisoned by it by a corrupt system um going to prison that if two years later you would have said now he is out of not only out of prison but he is the president of a democratic brazil again i would have been here smiling um but now it, it seems just unbelievably um corrosive and insidious what happens when uh, fascist, fascistic, and undemocratic regimes are are brought to power and I- empowered to um, destroy democratic institutions, um, which is something that though Russia didn't begin with democratic institutions, you see the the further erosion of systems in that country that are are capable of producing. Um, democratic leaders and producing uh, free and fair elections. But beyond that, 
systems that are are free of what Alexei Navalny is constantly fighting against, which is genuine corruption, not the kind of corruption that is politicized and used as a weapon to to frame and imprison leaders. Um, all to say that the what is happening in Brazil today is is a augurs very very dangerously, and it's something that we think about all the time. That if we allow the Bolsonaro's, the Putins to to remain in power, um, they will soon be taking over more more Supreme Courts, Congresses, presidential palaces in the future. No, yeah, I think it's okay <laughs> to applaud for that. Christo, you yourself have received um, uh, some awards and recognition recently in, uh, in November, uh, recognized by the International Center for Journalists Founders Award, right? And, and, and that, of course, after the, the European uh, Press Prize in 2019 for your previous work. You've also received a particular recognition that you weren't necessarily seeking um, uh, at the right at about a Christmas present, I think. It was it on Christmas out. Day. On Christmas Day. So tell people about that. Yeah, I've, um, I didn't know, but I saw a couple of tweets, including from Elliot, the founder of Bellingcat, who said, Christo has been awarded the highest journalism prize. And I'm like, what? I didn't know there was another prize. And then I looked at what he tweeted, and it was the, the announcement that I was on Russia's most wanted list. <laughs> The, the only non-Russian on that list, um, so that's a recognition. It's a very scary recognition. Um, and apparently, we, um, until now, I tried, I'm trying to find out why I'm on that list. What is the indictment? Because it says, for breaking the law, okay? Um, which is a very interesting psychological ploy by, by the Kremlin, because now I can't defend myself because I have no idea what I should defend myself from. But some Russian media said that, well, in, inside sources told them that it's because of me violating the censorship law that pre- prohibits Russian journalists from reporting on the war, calling the war a war. Um, and apparently they've applied that to a non-Russian journalist as well for the first time, which is crazy because that means that uh, that's a message to the New York Times, to the Washington Post, to everybody, that they should not cover this war lest they become also wanted persons. Yeah. So, Shane, you were talking about corruption, um, and there's the moment in the, in the film right, right at the beginning, the, the Navalny's rally in 2018, right, where people are chanting, well, Navalny says uh, Putin, and people respond, vor, right, uh, Putin is a thief. Um, so talk about the importance of this pursuit of corruption I mean, and, and, and why that matters and why that makes him a dangerous uh, player. And, and sure. No, you go for it. Yeah, I mean, maybe Christo, actually, you're, you're probably the one to answer that question. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, the, the, Russia, the Russian regime has many, many... Um, devious sides. But the Russian population, I think until they saw this film, or until many of them saw this investigation, could not really believe. They lived in a state of cognitive dissonance because they couldn't believe that their government is so evil. But they could believe that their government was corrupt because that has traditionally been something that they are open to believing. And I think Alexei Navalny found this 
sort of funnel that was open to the collective mind that they can believe this, especially when you show them the uh, palaces that their leaders are living in, the, um, uh, the, the sort of yachts that cost $150 million that they uh, sail on while pretending to be uh, sort of standing up for the little man. Uh, that was something that the Russian people can believe. And I think that's why it was so dangerous, because he was speaking in languages that people believed. And that became a big problem, not, not necessarily for Putin, but for all the cronies, all the friends of Putin. And thus he became, um, well, hated and an enemy of a large clique of corrupt officials. So I think that's, that was the danger. It was the, the formula that he found. Talk in believable terms to the people. And with a tongue-in-cheek, like uh, making fun of these uh, officials because they can't even hide their traces well. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that he, they also devised a smart voting system, which was something that allowed people to, to think that they're, to, to understand and recognize how their vote could have the most impact. It would consolidate votes in certain areas, targeting candidates that had a chance of winning. I think one of the, the most insidious parts of the regime is to make people believe that they have no voice, that they, have no, that they are not empowered and have no capacity to change anything. Alexei Navalny also targeted that psychological and behavioral element in the, in the population, which to me was astounding and one of the most important political tools he and his team devised. And that sort of seeks to combat the, a, kind of, a kind of corruption of consciousness, or a, 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 a media manipulation of, of what people are, are capable of doing. Um, and I think that was one of Alexei's like, greatest, greatest gifts before, before he went back to prison. If I can give one example of yeah. the efficiency of the, of the risk that Alexei uh, poses to the system. Um, he developed this app called Smart, Smart Voting App, uh, which allowed people to essentially uh, strategically target their voting. Clearly, Navalny said, there's, not, there's no place in the current electoral system for an independent party like mine. But you can at least channel your vote to some permissible party that is not the party of the thieves of Putin. Okay, so this app was very popular, and ultimately the Kremlin hacked the app and published the names and emails and phone numbers of everybody who downloaded the app. And we, of course, downloaded that hack, and we found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails of Russia's security officers who actually used the app. So his, his approach worked even on them, and that's why he's so dangerous. So let's talk about the, the climax in, in the film. I mean, that, that, that moment that, that you captured, the right before the publication um, and the phone calls taking place. I remember that phone call. <laughs> well, we, I had no idea what to expect. I thought that this was one of Navalny's political stunts. This was just something that he wanted to do. He thought it would be fun. I remember conferring with Christo the evening before, you know, what is the expectation that anything meaningful will happen? And you said north of 1%. But we might as well shoot it. It might be an interesting thing. Who knows? And we got up at 5 in the morning, and I was exhausted, and we started filming. And keep in mind, I don't speak a word of Russian. So for most of, of that morning, I'm sitting there with the camera thinking about the a million other things I have to do that day. Um, because it's not going well. Everyone's hanging up, as predicted. Not, this is not a fruitful endeavor. It's just something that Alexei wanted to do. Until they decide to change their tactic, and they decide that 
that Navalny will impersonate a high-ranking government uh, official in the security services. And then we, we got Kudratsev. We got the guy. And, and again, I don't speak any Russian, but you didn't have to speak a word of Russian to understand that something was going down. And I remember the moment I, I saw the corner of my eye, Maria Navalny's investigative lead, who we met in the film, her expression goes like this. It shifts and her, her jaw unhinges and drops to the floor in shock. And a bolt of lightning ran up and down my spine and I knew what was happening. And I, I remember sort of stiffening my back, making sure the camera was steady, making sure we had enough battery and hard drive. And we just kept shooting. But I, I was, you know, filming. Christo was actually in the room, shall we say. <laughs> what was it like for you, Christo? Well, I mean, um, I, I went through a whole roller coaster of emotions. In the beginning, I thought, this is a waste of time. Then I thought, okay, this guy's talking. Uh, well, but he can't not recognize Alexei's voice. So this must be a double operational game, as they call it in Russian security services. He must have made us, and he's now... And, and I'm thinking, what is happening now? Has he called, actually, their hitman in in Germany? Are they going to bring down the door in a minute? So I started getting worried about all of us. And then, at one point, um, the guy started mentioning new names, even more than we knew. And I realized, okay, this is real. This is actually happening. Uh, well, then the, 10 minutes later, I, 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 I was started worrying about him. Like, what will they do to him after he's telling us all of this? Shall we now prepare an exfiltration program and add another chapter to the film? And then ultimately, and this is interesting because Maria also shared the same emotion uh, she told me at the end. We, we had a, I mean, the call went 52 minutes. It's not the 10 minutes you see here. We got bored by the end. We were, doing, we were doing this to Alexei, yeah? And he's like, yeah, a little more, a little more. And then, yeah, this last emotion was, okay, I've peaked. I'll never live through anything like this again. What will I live for for the rest of my career? And Maria had the same feeling. But we have new challenges. So that's and, I, and I sort of knew immediately that this is the most extraordinary thing that I would ever film. And I had to come to terms with that because it just it had this sense... Right at, as as we were filming it, I understood what this was, um, and and it then became a discussion of what do we do with this footage. Navalny's instinct, of course, was to put it on the YouTube channel to weaponize <laughs> in this information warfare that he is a, a general in this fight. And as a, the docu director of the documentary, I understood that the biggest prerogative was for democracy and, and the Russian people to see this, and so they took twenty minutes of the footage and put it on their YouTube channel and. Um, you know, lo and behold, 40 million people watched it. And, and I just understood that this would become part of our story uh, and we'd include it in the film. And at, at the same time, right, as Clarissa Ward says, sort of as everything comes out, if you were making a feature film, right, uh, you couldn't get away with it because it's too over the top. And Clarissa should know she was literally doorstepping one of the poisoners as we were broadcasting this. So, yeah, it was, it was crazy. I, I, was not, I, I really thought you were going to veto the airing of that footage in real time on YouTube because he had the right to, right? But, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, but, of but, course, my first instinct is to be like, no, we've got to save it for the film. Like, it's, yeah, that's in an ideal world. But, of course, 
Navalny's mission and, and, and the significance of the footage takes precedence. So we understood that as well. And then the way it was very easy for me to reconcile it in my head is, okay, this is now just a plot point. This is part of the movie. This is part of the story. He'll take this footage. He'll put it on the YouTube channel. And then we'll have the Kremlin responding to it. How are they going to spin it? And we see the Russian public respond to it by making memes and jokes and calling him Putin the poisoner of underpants. <laughs> and, and that was just weaved into the fabric of, of the film. And that was a part of our process throughout making the film, too. We, we were going to take much longer to actually construct the film with our editors, but we knew we had to get it out as soon as possible. And then when we were going to release the film, there was a hope to release it in the summer and have a traditional rollout as a documentary would. But the war happened in February, and we released it as soon as we possibly could in April uh, to get it out to as many people as possible. And then here we are now in January, continuing to try and to share this film with as many people as possible. But at each, sta at each stage, we've sort of collectively known that we had to do what was best for Alexei and for the movement that, that he's growing and, and fighting for. Yeah, it's almost exactly two years, right, since he, since he returned to, to, to Russia. And yet the, the world has changed profoundly um, in, in, those, in those two years because of that, that full-scale in, invasion. Um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, and, and one of the folks here in the audience wants, wants to know as well, um, what, what is continuing to happen with the anti-corruption efforts, or have those been completely sidelined um, by, the, by the Russian war against Ukraine? Uh, no, um, that work continues. The same team is, in fact, currently focusing 99% on um, stopping the war, and they're doing it through the same methods that they did for fighting corruption. They're actually um, finding hidden assets owned by Russian political figures and oligarchs abroad, and they're getting them sanctioned so that they can uh, discourage them from continuing to support the war. And there's a correla correlation between the sanction list and support for the war. So same tools, but currently focused on, on stopping the war with any, any uh, method possible. Um, and, and, and they continue, for the remaining 1%, they continue doing pure anti-corruption investigations. The only problem is they can't do it from Russia anymore because all of them are branded literally terrorists. And they, Maria has the same status as, um, as uh, Osama bin Laden ISIS had, or ISIS had. Yeah, so, so that's the craziness, and they have to do it from abroad. The amount, the number of beautiful Russian souls that has been forced to leave the country is humongous. I mean, I personally know 200 journalists that had to leave Russia and are now living in sort of temporary uh, hotels around Europe. And that's, that's such a brain drain that uh, that will take. And just one thing that I want to add to that, because this speaks to the work that the anti, the, the reconstituted anti-corruption foundation, which is now operating, as Crystal mentioned, out of Vilnius, that they're doing Every, all of their efforts have been curbed to focus on the war effort and trying to break through Kremlin disinformation. And they've done that in a few primary avenues, but the perhaps two most impressive is that they have uh, uh, opted to pay the fines of any Russian citizen who is arrested for protesting the war. That really pissed off the Kremlin. And then they, they started a new media division 
a new YouTube channel with that's now racked up tens of millions, millions and millions of subscribers that's specifically oriented. It's like a new station that they created in a week to to report on what is actually happening in Ukraine. And these reports are getting to the Russian people, people, Russian people who are willing to watch this material. They're becoming extraordinarily popular and a lifeline for a lot of Russian people who believe in their country and believe in the future of their nation, the democratic future of Russia, and want to put this this horrendous chapter in the rear view. And they're inspiring a lot of people. And again, this is why Navalny's in solitary, because the organization is is so unrelenting. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting um, in connection with the film and the, and the Navalny's work against corruption is how corruption itself has surfaced in undermining Russia's own war efforts. Um, I'm wondering, wondering if you can, can talk about that, because that has, I think, Christo, I think you even tweeted about dead souls um, kind of at, at the beginning, when yeah. Ukrainians who were supposed to be bought uh, by, the, by the Russians. I mean, it's pervasive. I don't know. Anything you look at in the war effort on the Russian side, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's um, totally corrupt, and that explains the failure of Russia to deliver anything uh, from what it expected, starting from the fact that before the war, for the four years before the war, Putin had actually funded a secret division of the FSB whose goal was to recruit assets in Ukraine, uh, pay them off, and essentially keep them as sleepers at any level of government, of the police, of the military, of the secret service, ready to be activated when they invade. And what happened was these $2 billion that were spent on this, they were stolen on the way. So they never reached the Ukrainians. They were stolen by the FSB guys. So ultimately, because the FSB guys didn't believe that he would go, he would be as crazy as to launch the war. And the moment he did, he said, where, where are the guys who were supposed to actually rise up and deliver the victory? They, they didn't get any money. So, so that's an example. The, another example was that nothing in the military industrial complex worked. I mean, the communication, secret communication system that was developed over the last 10 years, the Atlas system, which took billions and billions of investments from the state, from the tax money, it literally did not work because it required apparently 4G um, uh, telecommunication networks. But the Ukrainians just switched off the 4G and it didn't work. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, at any level, there was, I mean, this is just two examples, but many more can be given. This is what we call Moscow 4. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it's interesting. There's a, there's a stupidity or a simplicity and a sophistication in Moscow 4, too. Uh, this, is a, you know, this is in Fathers and Sons or Brothers Karamazov. It's a part of the Russian tradition, too, where there is, when you, when you take away something to believe in, uh, there is a, that creates a, a type of fear and a type of obedience. And so what, what may appear as stupidity actually has something very, very significant, uh, a significant way of controlling a population and of making people continue to fight for you, continue to believe things that are as outrageous as what is said about Zelensky or Ukraine, uh, because that, that other kind of belief that there is a, a truth beyond what you're, what you're told has been eradicated. So while, while we should laugh, we also, there is also a great danger in that, and we've seen it in this country as well. Well, and yet, 
to, to kind of come, come back to that, though, it's interesting how humor can be a really powerful weapon. Um, you know, men- mentioning Zelensky, right, or mentioning the memes um, that, that you talked about in, in response to the, the investigation. Um, it's, I mean, it's Navalny's brand. I describe him as, as for Americans who have never heard of him. Imagine if John Oliver, these John Oliver-style YouTube videos. I mean, that's how he <coughs> communicates with people, through sarcasm and humor. And it's, it's core to who he is. The way he copes with the extraordinary danger he endures in his life is through laughing. Um, and that is kind of incredible. And, and through talking to people, it's a, it's a different different kind of liberalism where you position yourself to be able to talk to every single person on the political spectrum um, and to not necessarily agree with them, but engage in that discourse and that conversation. And he's been, he's been harnessing that power um, virtually. And he also is an incredible grassroots politician going to the, the furthest flung parts of Russia to speak with constituents. there. You can talk to donkeys. Give me a break. Exactly. (laughs) Well, so coming back to the um, to to Moscow four and and this and stupidity and brilliance, the use of Novichok, um, that it was both way way too obvious, open to interpretation. I mean, I I don't know the reason. I mean, I, I think it's my best guess is still corruption. Um, there's, I, I keep repeating, billions and billions and billions being spent on this program. And it's become a self-perpetuating lie that these scientists, military scientists, are asking for more and more money because they've, they're just on the cusp of developing the next be- best uh, generation of, of Novichok. And a lot of their bosses are getting a cut of the funding. So it is also corruption. But there's also a bit of KGB era uh, obsession with uh, scary weapons, scary deaths. It's not just the death, it's the way that the person should die that sends a chilling message to everybody else. And it's also deniability because in a country where there's never going to be a legal due deal, legal process, uh, it's, it's one thing for somebody like Nemtsov to be shot. Uh, that's not deniable. I mean, he was killed. Whereas if somebody's poisoned, there's always the official line that is, oh, well, he just died from a heart attack. If, if, that, if the plan had worked out, it would have been a heart attack or something. So it's the combination of these two. I don't know what is the prevalent one. So did anyone with you or and, and others that you know try to discourage Navalny from going back? Crystal, talk about the conversation you had with Ian Yulia, because that's an interesting insight. Yeah. I didn't feel it was my place to do that, but I still was wondering whether he's doing this against the consensus in the family or with their approval. So I had a discussion one evening with Yulia, and I was shocked to find out that she found it strange that I was even asking that question. She said, but of course he has to go back, because if he stays here, um, he will become an irrelevant talking head that is just talking to the Russians and not with the Russians. And I said, but you do realize that there is a risk. And she says, well, no, there's no risk. There's a guaranteed arrest. I said, okay, you do realize that it's not going to be a couple of days, right? And she says, it will be years. 
I said, and you're fine with that? And she said, I'm not fine, but that is the only thing he can do. So it was completely understood um, and, and anticipated that this would happen. And to me, this is something that I had never experienced. That, that, I mean, it's, it's the type of heroism, regardless of political beliefs and whether or not he's the best uh, political politician matching that particular time in, in, in history. But it's a type of heroism that is very rare. And what I believe in is heroes change countries. And it's the, the exception and not the... And he's an exception in that case, in that sense. And I think the calculation, I think we all have to remember, too, the calculation was different. That was before the war when he decided to go back. Yeah, that would be different. Yeah, and I think I think there would have been a different calculation if the war had, had begun. And I think that was... These were not unrelated events, his, impris- his return, his imprisonment, and the beginning of the war. Do you think there's a correlation? There's a lot of thought. Um, there's a lot of belief by some experts that Alexei's return actually delayed the war by one year because Putin showed signs of preparing for this war even before that. There was a constellation of uh, troops around the border at the end of 2020. But Putin needed all of his internal army in Ukraine because he thought that it would be an occupying force. And it's the same people that you see here actually having to disperse these protests. And the protests that essentially we all contributed through, uh, through the film uh, and, and through the investigation, um, they deferred the war. That's one of the thought process. Another way to look at it is um, Navalny came back and, um, and made the risk of Putin losing his next elections even bigger. And he needed to lash out, and lashing out at Ukraine was one way to de- deflect. That's a, I know, but before the uh, film, Christo, we were talking a little bit. I mean, I've, I've been involved with Ukraine going back to the, the 1990s myself when I first taught there at a university with the, with, with the Peace Corps. Um, I was really struck by seeing uh, the, the footage of the um, troops going after the protesters again because, because it looks like how they have handled every, every anti-war protest. In the film, you're saying, you know, I've, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, kind of not, not on this scale. And, and now it's become, become the norm. I think what we saw was a fundamental change in Russian society in the last two years. Um, I've been, I lived in Russia in the 90s. Um, you've spent some time there. Um, but after that, society became more and more brainwashed. Um, and until this investigation, it was a serious investigation, so it was not just Navalny being poisoned. We discovered that FSB machine, FSB machine for assassinations had actually gone after at least 10 opposition figures. Uh, and some of them were killed if, if effectively. But when we published this, invest, this serious investigation, the Russian population, the less curious one, because the curious part, the 25% that were always curious, they knew that Putin is evil. But another 60% realized that Putin is evil, that before that thought can be. Yeah? But this increased the requirement for violence to keep these at bay. And this is what happened, that we're seeing unprecedented in the last 25 years, levels of violence at their own population, because a majority of the population already realizes this is an evil regime. 
And unfortunately, it works. People are not in the street because the level of violence is, is what we see. So I asked a question earlier of, of all of you, kind of how the, how the film came together and how you became a part of it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really curious, and I know this is a big question, but at least in a short version, in a bigger trajectory for yourselves, like how did you, how did you wind up on a project like this, not just come together in a project like this, but, you know, what was it, Shane, you know, something at, something at Oberlin or Daniel, you know, when you got that camera for your bar mitzvah or, or Christo, um, I don't know if you want to sh- share, share this story from your, your childhood. I mean, they're kind of, you know, these, these moments like, okay, this actually maybe, maybe did lead me here all these years later. Take us back to Oberlin, Shane. <laughs> um, well, I, I got into to, to making films um, on a on my trip to to India. I, I went to graduate school in in New Delhi at Jawaharlal Nehru University, studying the psychology of diplomacy. But my flight was canceled on the way, and um, everyone was yelling at the ticket agent. And I, I bought him a sandwich. And when I went back to get my ticket, he had given me a, a business class seat. And I was 22 at the time. It was my first time up in the front. And uh, the person sitting next to me was a really well-known and respected producer. He, he showed me a script that he was going to India to make. Um, he fell asleep. I read it. When we had our layover in Frankfurt, I told him what I thought. And then he invited me to shadow him on set um, for a feature film in southern India when I saw that film being made, I, I, had no, I had no expectation or even ambition to be a filmmaker. But when I saw that film being made, I, I could intuit the power of, of story to, to not, n- not only push us to, to see what needs to be seen and do what needs to be done, but to, to feel and to, to open our heart to, to, this, to this planet and to each other. Um, when that happened, I, I, I still went and I took my exams and I finished my degree, but I, but I realized that there was, there was something else that I wanted to, to learn about and apply, um, apply my life to. And, um, and that's become, that, that has been a, a fusion of telling stories and also working with an incredible individuals and incredible teams to try and understand what their vision is, even sometimes before they see it and help them actualize it. One thing that I do have to mention before I answer the question um, that we haven't mentioned yet is Shane actually produced two documentaries this year. One's Navalny, and the other is called Fire of Love. Okay? And both of those films have been shortlisted for an Oscar. He loves when, he loves when I do that. <laughs> Um, I have no... One is slightly better. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> um, I, I have no uh, anecdote like that, uh, an inciting incident that put me on the path to make this movie. I think it was uh, 100,000 little moments in my life and, and, and just a curiosity that I inherited from my parents um, and, and a, a desire to make films... I, I knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker when I was 17, and when I was 18, I dropped out of university, and I just started making films, and I had, for my whole life, my dream was to make something meaningful that would impact the world that was important and big and a movie and entertaining and all of these things, and, and you know, a subject like that doesn't come around very often. 
Um, and most filmmakers never have the opportunity, the honor, the privilege to encounter a subject like that. Um, and my last film was a rock and roll movie. It was about the band, um, <laughs> which is totally different uh, than, than this film. Um, but when I met with Navalny for the first time, part of the reason why I think we bonded was both our shared sense of humor, um, but I explained to him that uh, I had political ambitions. I'm from Canada, and I told him that I dream of running for parliament uh, in Toronto, where I'm from. And he thought that was really cool. And, and he immediately started asking me questions about some uh, controversy involving the Canadian fisheries in Nova Scotia uh, that, that really put his wonkish political uh, interests on display. Um, but I think that's why we really bonded is because we had a, a, a mutual love of politics and the political process and public policy. Um, and I think about him a lot. This week's really challenging because we're coming up on two years. Um, and, you know, what really is hard for me is, is he really loved being a subject and he loved learning what we were doing and asking me questions. And he's never seen the movie. And what I, what I dream about is a day in the future when things are different and we can rent a cinema in Moscow and I can go and show him the movie and we can all be there together to show him the movie. Um, for me, that's, that's sort of like um, the, the natural, the conclusion to this journey that I really dream about is getting to show him the movie. Well, mine is a very short anecdote, the one that Stephen referred to. Um, so when I was in third grade, our, my teacher, my class teacher, was a literature teacher. So she came into class one day. She took out this huge 80s um, tape recorder. And she said, I'm going to ask each of you, and I will keep this recording for posterity, to tell me which literary character inspires you to be like them. So I had totally forgotten about this, obviously, until this same class uh, teacher, much older now, approached my mother a couple of years ago after I had a few successes in Bellingcat, and she brought the tape home, and apparently my answer was Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> That's it. Well, unfortunately, we're, we're out of time here this evening. Um, I want to thank all three of you for this incredible film. Um, thank you, Daniel Rohr, Shane Boris, and Christo Grozev, and the team, team behind it. And thank you for being with us here this evening at the Commonwealth Club. If you'd like to watch more programs uh, at, on the Commonwealth Club and to support the organization, um, visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. Thank you very much. Thank you. And take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.